Have you ever doubted something? Maybe it was hearing about a product that somebody was raving about. When I was a kid, they had infomercials. They still have infomercials, but nobody watches commercials anymore. Um, but I remember being a kid, um, the, the two most popular infomercials when I was growing up was uh, food dehydrators of any sort. Like you had to have a food dehydrator and they would show you all the reasons. And also the Ginsu knives. How many of you remember the Ginsu knives? I mean, they were amazing, right? You could cut a penny with them. I don't know why you would want to do that, but they were so sharp. And so, you know, it's this idea that, do you ever talk to someone and they're excited about something, a product, or, and, and you're all amped up, ready to go, and think, all right, I'm going to give this a shot, and then it falls flat. And so sometimes we can be, uh, we can doubt the, the claims or aspirations of something. Sometimes we're let down by that. Um, sometimes it's a person, though. You know, it's the idea that, of the motto, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. You know, we've been around people that have let us down. We put ourselves out there, and it just seems like we're discouraged because why isn't this relationship living up to what it should be? Doubt occurs for all sorts of reasons. But I would say doubt mostly occurs due to the failure of the object of our certainty living up to the standards that we believe to be true. So that whatever we are putting our trust in, whatever we're asked to put our trust in, if, if, if that doesn't live up to the standard that we have in our mind and heart, then we often are faced or prone to be doubtful. I want to ask you an exceedingly personal question this morning. Have you ever doubted your salvation? And what I mean by this is, have you ever gone through a season in your life where you were uncertain that God still loved you and that your sins, the ones that you're dealing with now, were paid for completely and forever? I think sometimes in the spiritual life, we can look back and say at that moment, yes, my sins were paid for, but what about right now as I'm still struggling? And we can begin to doubt and wonder if God still loves us. And it's not that God has failed us, it's that we are, are want, wandering from his truth and we are wondering in our heart, am I, ma- am I living up to the standard that God wants me to live for? Now, we've been talking about this idea of um, knowing for sure that we are saved all throughout our study in Romans. We call it the doctrine of assurance. And this morning, we're going to, again, look at the Word of God in a way that I pray gives you assurance in your heart. But I would guarantee that some of you, if not many of you, have doubted from time to time that you are a child of God. And that you are eternally saved. And if that has been, or even for some of you this morning, that is you today, I want to encourage you that the Word of God is absolutely clear that those who have placed their trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ, what He has accomplished on the cross, you have been saved from sin's penalty 
and its punishment. And you are saved forever. There is nothing in your life, nothing that can happen to you, nothing that can happen as a result of what you do that can separate you from the love of God which is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what we looked at in Romans chapter 8 verses 31 through 39 as we, we went through that long list of things that could possibly creep into our lives. And Paul emphatically says that there is nothing that will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And again, in Romans 10, Paul is strongly asserting that our salvation is a gift of God. That we are secure in Him. That our righteousness is not from what we do because we cannot do anything. But our righteousness... The, de- the declaration that we can stand before God right and true is guaranteed because Jesus has taken our place. And Jesus gives us that true righteousness. You're probably going to want to highlight these verses in Romans 10 because these are verses of assurance for the believer And it's also a reminder of the great responsibility that we have as believers. And while we're comforted by this assurance, which is a gift from God, it is received by grace through faith. There is something else that we need to see in this passage. And it's very clear in the text. And it's this, the promise of eternal salvation is for everyone who comes to the Lord by faith. It's for everyone. This isn't just good news for us. This is good news for the world. And so we need to be uh, faithful in understanding what Paul is encouraging us to see. Now, the danger is that doubt, the doubt that creeps in in the spiritual realm, the doubt that, that rests in our hearts and, and, and causes us to, to stray from God's truth and, and, and maybe be vulnerable to the attacks of Satan, uh, this doubt can often occur when we place too much emphasis on our works, on what we do. It becomes a performance-based relationship. You know, it, it's, it's kind of... This idea that I did not live up to my own standard for what I think God expects from me. So then that must mean there is something wrong in the relationship. And if we try to correct it, it might go well the next time. But a few cycles of self-correction that go off the, the, the rails there, we get into this place of saying, why even try anymore? And then we begin to stray further and further. And we see this because this is what Israel was guilty of. This is what Paul is tackling in Romans 10, that the nation of Israel had strayed from God's truth and that they were trying to to show their relationship with God by keeping the law, deriving a righteousness from the law and the commands. But that's not the reason why the, the law was given in the first place. The law wasn't given so that we could be sure that we are favorable in God's eyes. The law was given to show us that we need God. And we need what he supplies. In fact, the law made great provision for atonement. For substitutionary atonement. 
The Old Testament law provided opportunities for people when they strayed from the law to be made right in God's eyes by taking a sacrifice and offering it to God that would substitute the penalty that they incurred. And it was placed on that sacrifice and the person was forgiven. Now, they had to do that all the time. But when Jesus came, he did it once for all. He is the perfect sacrifice. And the law shows us that we all need a Messiah. We all need a Savior. That there's not enough good we can do. Listen, if, if, if we want to pursue righteousness by works, it will lead us to death. Not physical death. We're all going to physically die. It's going to lead us to spiritual death. Because what we're admitting if we try to pursue a relationship with God based on what we do is that what He has freely provided is not necessary. And I'm here to tell you, and the Word of God is clear in telling you, you need what God provides. And the world desperately needs what God provides. Puritan preacher Jonathan Edwards, who lived in the 1700s, said this. You contribute, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. I love that quote. Because it, it really eradicates this uh, propensity we have to say that we can do it. We can even do it with God's help. The reality is, the only thing you contribute in, in your salvation is that you need a Savior. The sin that entangles you and snares you, trips you up, causes you to fall, has allowed you or, or caused in you to, to have a heart that is not alive beating with the heart of God. The only thing you contribute in your salvation is the sin that made it necessary. Nothing else. Now that's been the argument that Paul has been making extensively in this passage. We contribute nothing else. He provides it all. And so we want to look at these verses together because they're so important for us to understand this amazing grace that He has provided. It's also important that we understand the simplicity of the Gospel. We talked about this last week. When you think about it, isn't the Gospel beautifully simple? It truly is. Paul said in verse 9 of chapter 10, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe that God raised Him from the dead, Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. The gospel is beautifully simple. We're guilty of making it terribly difficult. You know, if you ever try to share the gospel with someone and before you know it, you're talking about genealogies in the Old Testament and think, how did we end up here? You know, the, the gospel and its proclamation is wonderfully simple. 
there is a great need that mankind has, and it's due to sin, and there is a great Savior that loves us who paid for that sin. There's no uncertain terms. There's nothing else required than what Paul says in Romans 10.9. To confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and that God raised Him from the dead is to trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now in verse 11, Paul says this. For the Scripture says... Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Now, as Paul has masterfully done throughout the letter that he has written to the church in Rome, he again quotes the Old Testament. He cements the doctrine of the truths that he is presenting to the church in Rome about justification by faith through the lens of the Old Testament. Justification by faith is not a New Testament doctrine. We do not have two different kinds of gods in the scriptures, the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. We have one God that is presented all throughout scripture. And the main way, the only way that we find relationship with him is through faith. There is no other way. And so Paul takes us through, through the lens of the Old Testament, and he removes all doubt about the requirement for being made right in God's eyes by being justified by faith. He quotes Isaiah 28, verse 16. He says, For the Scripture says, Whoever believes in Him will not be disappointed. How about that truth? How many of you know that truth personally this morning? Whoever believes in Jesus will not be disappointed disappointed. Belief in God, specifically in His promises, is the only condition for justification. And what I mean by justification, again, is to be made right before God. That the righteous judge that has created all things can declare a sinner right in His eyes. And the Scriptures are clear. All you need to do is believe. Now what's interesting about this verse is that Paul has already quoted this verse and he quoted it recently in Romans chapter 9 verse 33. Behold I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Now under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit Paul adds, and anyone instead of he. So in verse 33 of chapter 9, he says, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. In verse 11, he says, whoever believes in him. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has the liberty to do that. We don't. But he does with God's help. And so let me ask you a question. In verse 11, when it says whoever, what does whoever mean? Whoever. Anyone. Any person. Anywhere. Anytime. If they believe in the person and work of Jesus, they will not be 
disappointed. Now just a quick thought as we have discussed this at length in Romans 9. The whoever in verse 11 is an invitation to anyone. And it's, it is the whoever here in chapter 10 that are the called in chapter 9. Those who God calls and elects in chapter 9, that's salvation from God's perspective, are the whoever of chapter 10, that whoever finds this grace, whoever receives the gospel, whoever trusts in Jesus Christ, they will not be disappointed. We can't miss it. God calls on His end, and yet the invitation of the gospel is universal on our side. And every person that finds life in Jesus, God was already working. All who are justified by faith through believing in the person and work of Christ are called by God. Now this is the ringing invitation of the gospel to all people. Look at verses 12 and 13. What Paul does in verses 12 and 13 is he introduces three clauses, three groups of descriptive terms, three areas to show us the who, who the whoever is. And they're all focused around the word for. In verse 12, he says, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. That's the first description of the whoever. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. That's the second description of the whoever of verse 11. And then verse 13, for whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the whoever. First thing is, there is no distinction between Jew or Greek. Now remember, we're, re- we're in a section in Romans as Paul is writing to a church about where Israel fits in God's plan. I mean, if they were the chosen people of God, then why are they living in unbelief of the Messiah that was given to them? And as Paul is encouraging this church to see God's heart for these people and that he's not finished working through them, he says in verse 12 that whoever trusts in the Lord will not be disappointed and that whoever is Jew and Gentile. And so today, under God's economy, the gospel goes out and it is proclaimed to the nations and every person, whether they are Jewish or whether they are Gentile, can find life in the Messiah. There is no distinction. The law that the Jews had was never a means to that end. Jesus died for everyone, Jew and Gentile. The source of the second clause is for the same Lord is Lord of all. So when Paul says that in verse 12, for the same Lord is Lord of all, we go back to verse 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, we understand what Paul is saying in verse 12. For the same Lord is Lord of all, the same King of kings, the same Master and Ruler For God so loved the world, Jew and Gentile, that He provides a benefit for all who trust in Him as King. Paul 
qualifies that. And he says that if you trust in him and you are the whoever, you will abound in riches. I don't know if you understand just how wealthy you are if you know the king this morning. I mean, if you think about all of the benefits that Christ provides, you're not hurting. There's no disappointment. God does not discriminate in blessing any person that calls on Him. We abound in riches for all who call on Him. Listen, there will never be a saved person that is turned away by God. A person that places their trust in Jesus Christ will never be turned away by the king. There will not be a person who has trusted in Jesus that will not receive the full benefits of that saving faith. God doesn't grade on a scale and say, okay, I know you believe in me, but man, it's been really hard. And so I'm going to give you a little bit of the blessings. But hey, this person over here, they get a lot of the blessings. Every person who calls out on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ receives every blessing that is provided for the child of God. Now, I want to clarify just for a second because some of you might be thinking, hey, I've heard you talk about before the idea of rewards in heaven. Well, that's not what Paul is saying here. Rewards are something that God bestows upon his children for the way that they live their life in honor of Him. And so if you've done well with life here, you receive rewards in heaven that you return right back to Him. And so it's not like there's a better life in eternity. We all enjoy it. What Paul is saying is, those who trust in Jesus will abound in riches. And the way my brain works, and this might not work very well in a room where, you know, you might not understand the illustration, but when I grew up, there was a cartoon called DuckTales. I don't know if any of you remember DuckTales. Maybe Jeff does. Yeah. So, Scrooge McDuck had these nephews, Huey, Dewey, and Louie, right? We know them from the Donald Duck, Mickey Mouse kind of thing, but... Uh, Scrooge McDuck had this vault that he would swim in the gold coins and, you know, all this kind of stuff. I mean, the riches abounded for him. When I think of how by faith we receive everything, the inheritance that we receive, and and if you want to just tap in a little bit to the inheritance that you're going to read or receive, read 1 Peter chapter 1. Paul does, I mean, Peter does a wonderful job explaining What is in the future for those who place their trust in him? But it's that kind of thing. All people who receive Christ will not be disappointed. Nobody's going to get to heaven and think, Ah, why did I believe in this? Boy, this is a real downer. This isn't what it was supposed to be. Every person that knows Jesus, receives everything that God has promised. 
the all who call on him in verse 11 indicates that they will not be disappointed. Now, if you remember from our time in Romans chapter 9, when we looked at this verse from Isaiah in verse 33, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed, I had mentioned that there's probably a better translation for the word disappointed than what is used here in the English. Do you remember? Oh man, I'm a terrible teacher. Shamed, yeah. They will not be ashamed. Do you see that? The word disappointed means ashamed. No person that trusts in Jesus will be ashamed when they face Jesus at the end of their life. Jesus has taken all the shame. All the shame of our lives that is a result of our sin, and he paid for it on the cross. Brothers and sisters, you can stand confidently in the presence of your king because Jesus has taken the shame away. These riches are the outpouring of his grace and kindness in providing salvation for all who believe. The final clause in describing the whoever of verse 11 is another whoever in verse 13. You may want to underline whoever, whoever. Like that word is prominent in the text because Paul is making it completely clear that it's a whoever that finds life in Jesus. It's not just the select group. It's not just a certain group of people that we have the opportunity. It's the whoever of the gospel that as the gospel goes out, every person has an opportunity to respond. And it's that whoever that enjoys the benefits. But Paul now quotes from the book of Joel, the prophet Joel. He quotes from Joel chapter 2, verse 32. In verse 13, we read, For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, if you've studied the Scriptures before, if you've read through the New Testament, you understand if you've done kind of like a deeper study that this is not the first time that this verse has been quoted before in the Bible. It was actually quoted for the first time in in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2. If you know anything about Acts chapter 2, and we talk about it from time to time, in Acts chapter 2, the church is born. The Holy Spirit came down from heaven in tongues of fire and was poured into the believers' hearts. And there was a man, the Apostle Peter, who stood up in Jerusalem and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, under the power of God, on the day the church was born, he preached a sermon and thousands of people came to know Jesus as Savior. And it's in this sermon that Peter quotes Joel 2.32. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And I think repetition is important in Scripture. Whether it's within the same passage, the same chapter, the same book, or even in the same testament. If something shows up a couple times, God is trying to say to us something of clear importance. What Peter and Paul are wanting us to know 
is that the door to salvation is open to everyone. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever. Listen, it's the whoever that needs to know. It's the whoever that needs to know. They need to know that they don't need to try and earn forgiveness, earn righteousness, earn standing. They don't need to strive for it. They don't need to reach out by their own effort to figure it out. Whoever calls out that Jesus is Lord will be met with open arms as they are justified by the Son of God. In verses 14 and 15 now, what Paul will do is say, how does the whoever become the whoever? For us, how did we get to where we are? Remember, we're talking about our side of things. How do we find life in Jesus in a sinful world? Well, this is what Paul says in verses 14 and 15. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. The whoever cannot know unless those who have already believed do something. Do you see that? The whoever that is out there that needs to hear the saving gospel. The whoever doesn't get to be whoever unless we go. God's elective decree in calling people to Himself that results in those who are saved being conformed to the image of His Son can only be conformed by calling upon Him. And they can only call upon Him if the conditions of verses 14 and 15 are met. So here's what Paul does. He turns the responsibility to believe to the responsibility of the believer. The responsibility to believe is turned over to us, the church. He shares the steps to conversion through a set of rhetorical questions. How will they? How will they? How will they? And he he starts with the end, like the end result, where it happens. How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And so the first step in this The way to life in Jesus is believe. I mean, that seems simple. But the first reality is that a person cannot call without believing. Salvation cannot come unless there is faith in Jesus Christ. But Paul adds on it. How are they going to believe? Think about your life. When you came to find life in Jesus... At the moment that you found life in Jesus, how did you come to faith? As God was working in your heart, and as He was working 
and the external influences of the world around you? How did you find life in Jesus? Well, Paul adds, how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? Listen, this is very important. People intrinsically are not looking around in the world that they live in and say, oh, I'm just going to decide to follow Jesus. Like, it just doesn't happen that way. Jesus doesn't just pop in your mind out of the air with no influence. Paul says that faith, the saving faith that comes from calling upon the name of the Lord is a result of hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now that sounds obvious, right? I mean, that makes sense, but the stats indicate that the church doesn't get it. Like, we know this, but we don't live this. The gospel is the best news in the world. But it isn't good news at this point, approximately for 2 billion, 28% of the world's population. Like right now, there are over 2 billion people living in the world that have never heard the gospel. They are presently cut off from access to the gospel. Viewed another way, there are 17,409 people groups in the world that have been identified. And that actually, that number has risen in the last 10 years. What I mean is we keep finding people groups that we never knew existed. Whether they live on some island in the middle of the sea or they live in some jungle that we've never found, we keep finding people groups that have never heard the gospel There are 17,409 people groups in the world. 7,402 of them are still unreached. That is 42.5%. An unreached or least reached people group is a people group among which there is no indigenous community of believing Christians with adequate numbers and resources to evangelize the group. Okay, there's a lot of technical words. Let me just distill it down to this. And it, uh, an unreached people group is this, a, a group that does not have a church witness from within that group to reach them. It's not like a missionary that does a flyover and drops pamphlets from the sky and says, okay, we reached them. We're talking about within their own community, people that know the Lord that are reaching them with the gospel. Of these 7,000 groups, 2,100 of those groups have a population of over 50,000 people. So we're not talking about like, there's 10 people that live in an island in the Pacific. It's no big deal, it's only 10 people. And I'm not even saying that if it was only 10 people, those 10 people are important. But we're talking large numbers. And this is the 21st century where the world is at our fingertips. Like, think about it. Within 24 hours, you can be anywhere in the world today. 
That's amazing. It's an incredible opportunity. And we have that many people living in the world that have never heard the name of Jesus. Out of every one dollar of Christian giving to all causes, less than one penny goes to that cause. For every dollar that is given by someone that loves Jesus, they've done the math. Less than one penny goes to reaching people that need the gospel. I've said this before, and I I might have shared these statistics before, but a great resource and website for you to look at, to be engaged with, to pray over, is a website called The Joshua Project. Google search Joshua Project and you can see the statistics and the ways that the gospel is going out in the areas that still need a witness. But that's the reality. How can a person believe if they haven't heard? And we're not doing a good job as the church helping people to hear. Paul will go on. How will they hear without a pastor? Is that what it said? No, okay, thank you. Uh, How will they hear without a preacher? And it's not a profession. The word doesn't mean profession. The word preacher here means someone who heralds. Now, we don't have many heralders here, but if you lived 2,000 years ago in Paul's time, there would be people that were out and about on the city streets of Rome or any larger city And they would just be freely declaring the news of the day. They would be the town criers. Yeah, they didn't have newspapers. And so people would get news and they would stand on the corner and let you know what was happening in the world that was around them. They were someone who heralds. In this context, Paul was saying a preacher is someone who heralds, who trumpets, who announces the good news of Jesus, where they are to the people around them. Proclamation is at the heart and soul of the Great Commission. To proclaim. Listen, you have a greater chance to lead your neighbor to faith than I do or this church. You do. You have a greater chance, a greater opportunity to impact your neighborhood, your workplace, your sphere of influence than any other person for the cause of Christ. You do. How will they hear without a preacher? And Paul says rhetorically, how will they preach unless they are sent? So here's the good news. You've been sent. You don't have to worry about that. That's been solved. Jesus commissioned all of his disciples to go with the gospel. To present the good news of the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Jesus did not call us to proclaim theology, issues in theology, church distinctions, church fights, church divisions. He didn't call us to proclaim politics, ideologies, ethnicities. He called his people to present the purity and simplicity 
of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we do. That's who we are. It's the same gospel that saves sinners like us. And when you go, and as you go, remember Isaiah 52, verse 7. It's where Paul quotes in verse 15, just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Now this phrase, how beautiful are the feet, is a figurative way of expressing gratitude for the obedience of the messengers who brought good news. It's a way of God saying, good job. Thank you. So my question to you this morning is, where do you need to go? Today. This week. Soon. Church, you know what good news is, right? You know what the good news is, right? You know Jesus. You know the impact that he has made on your life. You know how he has changed you from a dead sinner to a live saint. You know how he has restored your heart, given you a hope that cannot disappoint. You know the life that he gives that is eternal. You know that his blood has washed away all of your sins. You know that you have an eternity with him and you are given every blessing in the spiritual realm. You know that belief in him will not disappoint and that God is favorable towards you, that his wrath has passed over you, that he loves you unconditionally. You know those things. Now go tell someone those things because they need that hope as well. And as you go, remember There is room for whoever calls on the name of the Lord. And for those that have, there is assurance that God does not disappoint. That you have been saved completely from sin's penalty forever. And we're going to do something a little different. As we close... I want us to take a few moments, and I'm gonna, we're going to play a song in the, in the background. You can listen to the song. You can watch it being performed, those kind of things. This song was resonating with my heart this week. Um, if during the song you would like prayer, if you would like encouragement, maybe you need prayer for assurance. You've been in a, a stage of life where you're just, you're just not sure. And God used his word this morning to give you assurance. And you need prayer for assurance. You need prayer for some kind of uh, challenge in your life that you're facing. You just need God's people to come around you. I, I want to encourage you. Will you come forward? I know it's a hard thing, right? We don't like to get up and move. But I would say that any work of God in your life begins with some sort of action. So we want to pray for you. I'm going to stay up here or down here. Uh, You know, if if a bunch of people come forward, I I want to ask uh, maybe Randy and, you know, uh, maybe Brian, you know, some of the people to just 
and come up and pray. If we have so many people up here for prayer and you want to pray for someone, come up and pray for them. The other person that I want to invite to come forward is the person that has not called out on the name of the Lord. And that might be you this morning. Like never. You don't know who the Lord is. You've heard about him. Maybe through this message, God has been speaking to your heart. I want you to know that if you take the step of faith to believe in what Jesus has done on the cross for your sin, you will never be disappointed. God will forgive you completely. And he gives you a life that is, I I can't even describe. It's amazing. Whatever it is, know that you have a God that loves you and has made a way for you to join him at his table.